Philippians chapter 2. I know y'all were looking for somebody up here who uh, had a full head of hair, so I'm sorry this morning you are stuck with me. Um, So we are in a series on the community. This series could not be any more timely or important, not just for us, but for the church in general. Because while we live in the Bible Belt, in Owasso, Oklahoma, in Tulsa, Oklahoma, in Claremore, in Catoosa, in Skytook, in Bartlesville, we are increasingly living in a time when people are not seeing the benefit of the church. They're just not impressed. And I hope that you take that and that 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 allows you to be sobered just a bit. Because when people on the outside look at Christians, they just don't see any difference between us and the rest of the world. And this morning, one of the chief marks of a community that really practices community well is found in this verse, in this text. And I just want us to sit on it for a little bit. I just want us to just marinate in it. I want us to think about the nature of humility. So if you would, would you stand with me, Philippians chapter 2. I'll read from verses 1 down through verse 11. This is the very word of God. So if there is any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, Being in full accord and of one mind, do nothing from rivalry or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not consider equality with God a thing to be grasped, but made himself nothing, taking the form of a servant. Being born in the likeness of men and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. And therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, to the glory of God the Father." This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. You may be seated, please. This text is the classic text in the New Testament of what it means to grow in humility. This text breaks down into three primary components as we look at this together. The foundation of humility, the definition, what it is, and the motivation for it. Foundation, definition, motivation for it. First, the foundation. Notice in verse 1, would you lower your eyes and look at your bulletins or look at your Bibles with me? Let's be students of the Word. If there is any encouragement in Christo, in Christ. If there is any encouragement anywhere, it is in Christ. If there is any comfort from love anywhere, it is in Christ. Any participation in the Spirit at all. It has to be in Christ. Any true affection, any true sympathy, any true joy, it is in Christ. We spend the whole of our life 
trying to find ways that we can be encouraged, that we can get comfort, that we can get love, that we can participate in some kind of movement larger than ourselves, that we can grow more sympathetic outside of Christ. But outside of Christ, we frankly don't have the tools to know how to do that without putting ourselves first. The foundation of all humility is in Christ. God from all eternity who became man and who eternally exists now, fully God and fully man, with flesh, the incarnation, incarnate, with meat, within flesh. Jesus Christ gave up everything that you and I long to have. He had it. He had it. And he would have been completely justified in remaining with his Father and the Holy Spirit for all eternity. But he came in the incarnation to earth for you. Because he did not consider equality with God a thing to be grasped, but he emptied himself and became the form of a servant and became obedient to death, even death on a cross. That's big-time humility. The foundation for humility for you and for me and for the entire world is in Jesus Christ. For it's only in Christ that we have the tools to be able to get out beyond ourselves and possibly begin to think about others more than we think about ourselves, as Christ did. Second, what's the definition of humility? Well, verse 3 tells us what it is not. It says, do nothing from rivalry or conceit. The word rivalry is eretheon. The word conceit is kinodoxion. Some of your uh, texts may have selfish ambition. Any of you have selfish ambition? Even the ESV, actually. There's two different versions of the ESV out there. Some have selfish ambition and some have rivalry. Both are at play. The word means to um, to be against one another, to be selfishly motivated, to have ambition. Because by definition, when you are self-promoting, regardless of how honorable you may think that your uh, motivations are, you are by nature being others demoting. Whatever it might be, you're, you're promoting yourself, you're, you're demoting other people. And so we tend to say, well, I didn't mean to put him down. But by virtue of talking about your own accolades or your own self in order for other people around you to think more highly of you, you by nature are putting other people down. That's just the way that it works. Self-promotion is always self-promoting because it's in contradistinction to others being demoted. Rivalry. Also conceit. Kinodoxion. Kino means empty. Doxa means glory. It means empty glory. Somebody who's conceited is full of empty glory. They're stuck on themselves. They want themselves to be the one that gets all the glory, but it's an empty glory. And those of you who struggle with conceit know what this is like. You're so, you're so hungry for other people to notice you that you really want to be liked by other people. And you know that over time, the more and more you try to do that, the more you feel like you're just getting a mouthful of gravel. It just it doesn't satisfy you. you. You're constantly like trying to prop up these straw men use to make other people just like adore you and worship you. You're full of conceit. You're full of empty glory. That's what Paul says humility is not. And this coming from a man who was the Hebrew of Hebrews, this coming from a man who's a Pharisee of Pharisees, unto the law, he made a 4.0. 
He was perfect in every way. He knew what it was like to be puffed up, full of empty glory. And so that's how we can write it so honestly. Listen, do nothing from robbery or empty glory. And Paul might have been thinking as he wrote this, because I know what that's like and it doesn't satisfy. But here's the definition. In humility, definition number one, you count others more significant than yourselves. A humble person counts others more significant than themselves. That doesn't mean that they're of value, what philosophers call your ontological value. The, the essence of who you are is decreased in any way, shape, or form. We're all made in the image of God, and we're all uh, deserving of the dignity that God has given to men and to women. But it does mean that you are not so caught up in your own world that you're not able to put yourself in the shoes of another person that you're able easily to jump into their world, that you're able to see the world from their point of view, and that you're able to love them well. And you're not constantly trying to get them to kind of prop you up. What more, what more propping up, Christian, do you need than that the Son of God came to give His life for you, and that we've been raised with Christ now in part, declared innocent, given His righteousness, free in every way? What more do you need? But you and I underestimate the power of sin so much so that we don't see how its insidiousness makes us see that the greatest news in all the world kind of becomes boring. And that what I really need is a, is a, is a new wife. Or what I really need is, is a new Wi-Fi TV. Or what I really need is this or that app. Or what I really need is to do th- whatever it is. The insidiousness of sin is reflective in your own heart and in mine by how bored we get with the greatest news in all the world. If you had been in prison for a thousand years in a six-by-six cell, darkness, and all of a sudden they were to say to you, you're free, you would not know what to do with that good news. You would scarcely believe it, but then when you came to your senses and you did believe it and you did see the gates open, you would run and sing and dance for joy. And here we are as a church, so tied up in self-conceit and concern about ourselves that we're slow to notice our neighbors. When we come to community groups, we're so interested in other people knowing that we were there and hearing what we have to say that we don't actually just stop and listen. Which takes us, doesn't it, into the next aspect of what humility is. It says also in verse Uh, Four, it says, let each of you look not only to your own interests, but also to the interests of others. A humble person looks not only to their own interests, but also to the interests of others, which means that it's not that you ignore your own interests. It's that you care about other people's interests as much as you care about your own interests. It's impossible for you not to care about your own interests because they are your own. It just means to love other people with as much love as you have toward yourself. It means to be able to give of yourself toward other people and to experience genuine community over time. What's our motivation for this? Our motivation, of course, is Christ himself. Notice this is what Paul does. He takes the Philippians and all the book of joy, the book of Philippians, he takes them right in to Jesus. He says, have this mind among yourselves. That is, have this quality among yourselves. Have this spirit about you. Have this kind of humility, Church of Philippi. 
Church of Tulsa, Trinity, which is yours in Christ. Notice what Jesus is, who, though he was in the form of God, he did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but he looked not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Verse 7, he made himself nothing, taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself. He was base. He was lowly. Tapenos in Greek. He was humble by becoming obedient to death, even the point of death on a cross. Friends, this is one of the things I think that uh, I, uh, trying to figure out if we're humble people is a really hard enterprise because it's, it's hard. It's like, you know, what do you say? I'm growing in humility? I mean, how do you, you can't, it's hard to address that, isn't it? But it is a byproduct that is so important for us as a church to have, especially as a young church. We're still young, seven years in. So let me just give you some diagnostic questions to help kind of feed your thought. When you are with people, does, does their experience of you in that context pull them toward you or push them away? Do people sense when they're with you that you are a safe place to be? Does your eye contact and posture and presence affirm their presence? Do you give people the impression that they are not having to compete for your attention? You have to trust my credentials as a pastor, not as a father or a husband on this, because I am not good at it. Like, even this week, my children, my, my, my four-year-old said to me, Dad, Dad, you're not listening to me. He wanted to wrestle, and I was trying to text something on my phone. And okay, yes, you know, I'm not, not going to uh, badger technology, and, and it's too easy, low-hanging fruit to, to make fun of or to put down. But it distracts all of us, so much so that I have to set limits in my own house of when I can and cannot use my phone, not because I'm legalistic, but because I know that I'm so owned by sin that my children don't feel like I'm fully present with them. You might know what I'm talking about. There are scales that each of us are on. There are tendencies we have. When you're with people, are you locked in on them, or do you tend to be aloof? Men, what would your wife say about that? Wives, what would your husband say about that? When you are, uh, when you are with somebody, do you give them their, the impression that there is nobody more important in the world than the person that you're talking to at that time? Are you locked in? Are you humble? Are you the kind of person that um, uh, isn't able to let another person get the credit when you're in a group? Are you so hungry to fight for attention that you're just, you just make sure just through little things that you add in the conversation that you know what you're talking about and you do it in a way that makes everybody else recognize that they now know that you know what you're talking about. What about in the way that we listen as a church? You know, you hear the old phrase, people don't really know, uh, care how much you know until they know how much you care. Maybe we should change that to say people really don't care how much you know until they know how much you care to listen to them. Because the art of listening is just that it is an art 
and we try to raise our children to learn how to listen well. But some of us, frankly, didn't, we didn't get that character quality. And I don't mean character like as, in, as integrity or a moral character quality. I, meant like, I mean that like in a sense of uh, a skill, like, like um, uh, you know, sociologists tend to think about it. We didn't get that quality of being able to listen very well. And you know that you don't listen very well whenever you catch yourself interrupting people. Like, you've ever noticed that you do that, or there's people in your community group who are kind of like the interrupters? You may be that, perhaps. I've been that, certainly, in the past. You know, they'll say something like, you know, I was going over the train tracks the other day. Well, my grandfather built those train tracks, and I, my family, you know, they've been railroaders for many generations, and it's like, takes the conversation somewhere else completely, right? Or, uh, you know, they'll say something like, in this, in, you know, in a Bible study, they'll be talking about something, and you'll say, interrupting the leader, well, I just read a great book. It was by this so-and-so popular author, and this is what he taught me. And so, like, all of a sudden, you're like the total spiritual stud in the room, and you want people to know that? Like, you're not listening very well. Men, we do this with our wives all the time. At least if you're like me, you do that. And wives, we probably do that with our husbands, too, all the time, where we don't really listen and let them in. So there's the kind of interrupters who don't really listen. That's a form of conceit. There's also the kind of listeners who are kind of the resident experts, and people loathe these people. They loathe them, especially, oh gosh, especially when it comes to theology. I mean, there are like the resident experts in the camp, and so when there's a topic that's mentioned, somebody wants to chime in and just make sure that their voice, and they remind everybody that they're the ones who know, you know, the most about it. Or they'll say, you know, somebody will be teaching a class, or somebody will be, um, you know, uh, leading a Bible study, and, and all of a sudden, um, or at work, somebody's talking about something at work with the boss around, and, and then somebody just jumps in and kind of becomes the resident expert when somebody who's presenting doesn't quite present, you know, to your standard. You know what I'm saying? Is this falling on deaf ears, or are you with me? The people who interrupt and the resident experts are very difficult people to be around, and it's hard to help people like me who have been, uh, had a tendency toward both, and like many of you perhaps, to recognize that in ourselves, unless we have other people who are able to say, hey, um, heads up, do you know that when you did that, have you ever thought about the way that that came across? <sighs> what a loving thing to say to somebody that you know and love. And it also gives them the opportunity to be what Jesus himself did, what he was. Jesus had no reason to be defensive because he did no wrong. But in situations where, um, you know, we have room to grow, are we growing less self-defensive? Listen, our Savior could have very easily been defensive before Pilate. And he could have said, Pilate, one day I will judge you. And one day could be right now. And Jesus had the power at that very moment to judge Pilate, for Pilate to have been killed immediately. Jesus had the power to call down myriads and myriads of angels on the cross, but he didn't. He wasn't self-defensive. He didn't defend himself. Are you willing to be misunderstood, Christian? Are you meek? Are you humble? That is what makes a community something beautiful. People who listen well to each other, and, of course, don't take this to the extreme. Don't say, well, Blake said you can never talk. You know what I mean. Just you're listening to each other. You're really hearing them out, and you're engaging with them. 
And you'll find that whenever you're the kind of people that, that begin to ask questions, especially for those who are new to community groups or new to Trinity, they just give you doors to walk through because the easiest question to ask somebody is a question about themselves because we all love to answer questions about ourselves. And once you start talking about something they're interested in, are you interested in what they're interested in? And are you willing to learn something new about their world? And are you willing to then ask another question about a door that they may open in their conversation with you? And then go through another door with another question, and then you're off to the races. I had a friend just this week when I was in San Antonio. There was a friend who was telling me about a, about a, a guy he played golf with for four hours. They were going around playing golf. It was a slow game of golf, by the way. It took them uh, half the day. And he, he said that I, I asked him a question when we first got into the golf cart. And at the 19th hole, I said goodbye to him. And I knew everything about him. And he knew nothing about me. Because for four hours, I mean, and this is an art form too. If you play golf, you know that there are times that you can't ask questions and you can't talk. And there are times you can't. If you hit a good shot, you can't talk. And if somebody hits a bad shot, you got to be very careful how you enter into a conversation again after that, right? But for four hours... This guy just talked about himself. It was amazing. And, and the guy just kept, you know, asking questions. And he wasn't leading them on. It was just, but the guy never returned one question. When you're with people, do you ask questions about their life? Do you enter into their world? Are you with them? This is the kind of quality as a community that people are attracted to. And we shouldn't manifest this kind of character or skill as a church because we want people to be attracted to it. We want to manifest this character and skill. Why? Because this is what Jesus has called us to do and to be. This is what we will be like in heaven. So full, so complete, that we will spend all eternity with our brothers and sisters and the Apostle Paul and Isaiah and Jeremiah, learning from each other for all eternity. For God can never be consumed with our minds. We're going to consistently be learning about Him. So heaven is going to be a wonderful time for us to just be asking questions and learning why not learn to practice that now as a church? Do you ask yourself, or, or uh, let me say it this way, do you use your resources for the sake of others? Or do you hoard them? That's a kind of selfish ambition and rivalry. Notice that Jesus tells us the essence of the gospel is that he shares his resources with us, doesn't he? He doesn't hoard those resources, but he gladly shares them. He gives them to us. And even though we spit, metaphorically speaking, in his face at the garden, Jesus opens up the wealth of resources and he shares them. How about you? Do you share your home? Do you share your things with other people? Children, are you able to learn when you're young to share your toys are you able to be patient with your brothers or your sisters whenever they want something of yours? This is the mark of humility that God has called us to. And it is a character quality. It is a skill that you must learn. And we need to be able to remind each other of that and to pour into each other and to love each other enough to help us recognize when we tend to be interrupters or when we tend to be resident experts. When we are not able to see how we are coming across to other people. We're a church that allows us to say, hey, brother, I love you so much. But you know how that came across? Some of the most uh, 
beneficial times in your spiritual life and certainly in mine have come. And guys have said that kind of stuff to me. And notice, notice that we are able to be humble. Why? Because we know that our Father loves us and wants our best. So we don't have to always be defensive about trying to earn the best now or get people's attention now. Your Father gives you the best. Look what He gave Jesus in verse 9. It says, Therefore, God has highly exalted Him and bestowed upon Him the name that is above every name, the name of Christ, which became lower than low, a criminal sentenced to die in a monkey court killed by the Romans. His name now is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of Father, and we are raised with Him. We are seated with Christ in Him in some mystical, beautiful way. And so we can live our life now with all the ambitions that the Lord has given you, good ambitions, confident to know that your name is in Christ. And therefore, the confidence that it gives you to love other people when your tank is empty is just astounding. And the confidence it gives you to keep your mouth closed when you can't say anything productive is really helpful. The first song that we sang this morning, I think it was the first song that we sang, from the love of my own comfort, from the fear of having nothing, from a life of worldly passions, deliver us, O God. From the need to be understood, from the need to be accepted, from the fear of being lonely, deliver me, O God, and I shall not want, I shall not want, when I taste your goodness. Do you see that your Savior is so good? Or have you grown tired of the gospel, Christians? When I taste your goodness, I shall not want. From the fear of humility, deliver me, O God. Oh, Lord, let that be our prayer. Let us be able to say that we are captivated by his beauty. Worthy tribute, haste to bring. Let his peerless love constrain thee. And allow us to crown him our unrivaled king. And those of you who struggle, as the old hymn writer said, if you struggle, listen, you are coming to a king. Large petitions with thee bring. For his grace and mercy are so great. There is nothing that you could ask beyond the bounds of his grace. Would you ask to be more humble? Would you ask the Lord to set your eyes upon Jesus, to see him, who was the one who became obedient to death, even death on a cross? And would you lean into your adoption in Christ so that you're able to give someone in front of you all of you, that you're able to lay down your phones if you need to, that you're able to not be distracted, but you're able to lock in? You're able to demonstrate that kind of humility, not because you want them to think you're humble. It's not the point. Because you're looking to your Savior. And you are called to be little Christian, little Christ's Christian in Owasso and Tulsa and the world. That's how the church grows. They're not impressed. They're not impressed by the kitschiness of the marketing or the church. 
what they're impressed by is the changed lives of people in it. And the first way that people see it is how well you listen, how well you are fully present with them. Can we do that together? Let's try. And that'd be a good start. Let's look to our Savior, who himself did not consider equality with God a thing to be grasped, but he emptied himself and became nothing, so that we might empty ourselves of all the empty glory that we pursue and all of our conceit and all of our selfish ambition, and we might say, yes, we are captivated by your beauty, Lord Christ, and therefore I can give my life for the sake of other people without demanding that they notice me. Amen. Father, would you help us as a church to be a people who are marked by humility? Would you help us in practical ways? Would you help us, Father, by being locked in on people, by being aware, by not being aloof? Father, would you help us to be a people that are a safe place for others? Would you help us to be a people, Father, where when people leave, they are better because of their interactions with us? more encouraged, more strengthened, more affirmed. And Father, would you help us to become something natural to us, not kitschy or fake. Would you help it to become something naturally that becomes part of the culture of Trinity? Oh, we pray, Father. You are so great. Help us to find our greatness in you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.